Disclaimer. In this chapter, we will be discussing the murders of two young girls. Some of the details may be triggering for some audiences. Everyone discussed will be considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This will be the only warning. So just backing up to the crime scene um, that, that you just went over, um, I want to say that I'm aware, we are aware, that the document says that um, Abby was dressed in Libby's jeans, for example. But we know, correction, we think we know because of the family's reports and the missing persons reports from back in 2017 listed Libby as had been wearing um, sweatpants. So maybe she was actually wearing jeans and the family remembered wrong or... Perhaps um, they were jeggings. They could have been jeggings or this document could have... Corrected. It they or could have been wrong, wrong right? Yeah. With that, with those little details, those but are... But we discussed it mm-hmm. and we think it's more plausible that she was wearing jeans mm-hmm. because they were there to maybe meet Anthony shots or maybe or somebody maybe you never I mean you never know but even if even if she was wearing sweatpants and this document says jeans to me it at the end of the day it really doesn't it doesn't make these allegations more or less true or believable so so am I just getting into it yeah, part two is the evidence that connects the Odinites to the murders. I cannot wait to hear this. Yeah, so I think this section is actually pretty long. Well, I think it starts with giving more of a background to Odinism, which they're pretty much explaining it might have meant something back in the day. Mm-hmm. But now it's kind of being taken over by skinheads, neo-Nazis, and other white supremacist groups across the nation. So like maybe we don't have to get into the background as much. If people are interested in learning a little bit more about the culture, they can go and look. But for what it is... For us, like, I think we understand that these are... White supremacists. And just so everybody knows, these documents, plus all of the other Delphi-related court filings, they've all already been uploaded to our Patreon. So feel free to go ahead and go on and read those. Page 46 for your reference. So in addition to the white supremacy component that exists within Odinism... There seems to be an additional dark, demonic component to Odinism, at least if articles concerning Odinist human sacrifice and imagery found on the internet, coupled with the imagery and language found on Brad Holder's Facebook page, are to be considered. As an example, the defense has attached exhibits 30 through 34. Exhibits 30 and 31 were found on the internet. Exhibits 32, 33, and 34 are different versions of the same image that Brad Holder posted on his Facebook page. And as you can see, law enforcement wrote the words, Painting by Brad Holder, Odin Hanging from World Tree on Exhibit 34. And I'd like to add 
that it is so fascinating because Brad Holder is probably shitting his pants right now (laughs) if he has something to do with it or even if he doesn't have something to do with it. He's probably having a little bit of a why the frick are they throwing my name around so much if he's not involved. If he is involved, which defense is doing a really good job painting that picture, um, well, I guess he knows that they're on to him, if that's true. A lot of these exhibits were kept confidential, but the ones that aren't confidential are up on our Patreon, so feel free to go and look at those. So additionally, Kevin Murphy, who was a state trooper that investigated the Odinist angle, said this about Odinism, quote, It seemed to be to border on almost a satanic type of worshipping, sacrificing, but I couldn't really wrap my brain around it, unquote. So exhibit 30 is an image from a website on Odinism of a man hanging upside down from a tree who has been sliced in the neck with blood dripping to the ground. This man's arms are posed similarly to Abby's at the crime scene. This man's legs are also posed similarly to Abby's at the crime scene. His left leg is straight and his right leg is bent at the knee. The only difference is the man's right leg is placed over the left leg while Abby's right leg was posed under her left leg. Exhibit 31 is an image from a website on Odinism of a man wearing antlers similar to the crude way in which sticks were formed on Abby's head. Exhibit 31 also resembles the crime scene in that the man's left leg is straight while his right leg is bent at the knee and placed under his left leg, just like Abby was found. I looked up the photo. Yeah. Have you seen it? No. I fully see what they're talking about. One leg goes under and one goes up. That is, if that is how she was posed, that is Odin hanging from the world tree. Hmm. It's fucked up, man. The defense included exhibits 32 and 33 in the event that the court might think something like, well, just because those images are available on the internet concerning Odinism has nothing to do with Brad Holder. Exhibits 32 and 33 are image that the defense located in the state's discovery. Both exhibits are the same image, with exhibit 33 being a close-up version. The image itself is a painting produced by the hands of Brad Holder. As the court can see, Brad Holder painted what the defense would call a very creepy, serial killer-looking image of a naked man hanging from a tree. Holder's painting is similar in appearance to exhibits 30 and 31. Where did you find that in the stuff that I... Just Google search. Oh. That, that's just when you search Odin hanging himself world of... Or the world tree or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's like the first image that pops up. Also in Holder's self-made painting, you can see that just like Abby, the hanging man's right leg is bent at the knee, angled toward the man's straight left leg. Again, an overly inquisitive man down in Georgia, you remember Brian Boucher, began piecing all of this together without even having the benefit of the crime scene photographs. Yet the unified command with the benefit of the crime scene photographs apparently, either incompetently or intentionally, failed to piece together these images 
which would have caused any curious investigator to continue pursuing Brad Holder as a suspect. So Ryan Boucher's curiosity led him to continue his research into runes and Odinism. Boucher's research led to an article that is a primer for Odinist sacrifice. The defense has attached this article by Daniel Bray, entitled Sacrifice and Sacrificial Ideology in Old Norse Religion. Within Bray's article, he discusses the history of human sacrifice to Odin that exists in the pagan Norse religion. Unified Command claims that Odinism was ruled out early because of the findings of a Purdue professor. However, Unified Command now claims that it can't remember the name of the Purdue professor. Early in the investigation, one of the investigators viewing the crime scene thought that it might be the work of Odinists practicing Odinism. Unified Command's Jerry Holman has forgotten which investigator it was. Early in the investigation, based upon the thought that the Odinism may explain how the bodies were found and how the sticks were arranged on top of the girls, Unified Command sought out an expert. The expert was being sought out in order to consider whether the crime scene was indicative of Odinism or some other cult. According to Holman, Sergeant Steve Buckley of the Indiana State Police was in charge of locating the expert. So allegedly, the expert that Sergeant Buckley found was from Purdue. According to Holman, he doesn't know what the Purdue professor's background is, but he studies that Norwegian Nordic culture that Odinism is. Holman admitted that he has never talked to the professor, and Holman stated that Sergeant Buckley knew the professor and his background, and furthermore, that Sergeant Buckley was in communication with them. According to Holman, the professor was out of the country at that time, and we did not release the photos, but we released a sketch of the sticks and how they were laid and some other information. Having reviewed everything, the professor concluded that it was not Odinism or any type of cult worshipping or any type of a group that would have conducted the crime. And I'd like to say one of my suspicions was, obviously I haven't seen the crime scene photos, but it could be if a, if a professor who studied Odinism couldn't recognize the ruins and the, and the, the symbolism that was left at the crime scene as being occult related, it could be somebody who was staging it, just like they said. They were trying to make it look like something that it wasn't. He has a YouTube. Sorry. I clicked on it. He has a YouTube? Yeah, but it's all him shaving with music. Gross. Brad Holder, too. What are you doing? I just want to see if it tells anything. Like, maybe a tattoo. He shit. Oh, it's him shaving his head clean. What date? Because a lot of people July last 2nd. night were saying that he had shaved head and a long beard on February 13th, 2017. Yeah. But what I'm saying is who, sh- who typically puts the effort into shaving their head fully bald? Mm. White supremacist. Oh. <laughs> Girl. <laughs> Uh, this is just July 2nd, 2023, but you are right on, um, in February, it was, like, he had, like, the beard. 
he looked more like bridge guy. Oh. Okay. But I don't want to, I don't know. Like, what if, ooh, June 25th, he shared a TikTok that says, come, now is the time to worship. It says this video is unavailable as it belongs to a private account. So. I think maybe kind of late to the social media game if we're going to troll him. Um, He's probably, at this point, he's probably gone on and privated everything. Not his Facebook, not his YouTube. Fair. If anything, somebody needs to start screen recording. No. Whose side are you on? (laughs) Tell him to. No, screen record everything before he's able to delete shit. Oh, people did. Absolutely. Like, one of the first things I did when I seen his name is I went on and I took screenshots of all the weird shit that was on his Facebook and then come to find out some of the stuff that I grabbed is is mentioned in this document. Mm-hmm. Because still to this day, you can go back and see it. He still doesn't see anything wrong with posting some of the stuff that he posted. True that. Look at that stature, dude. That's bridge guy stature. <laughs> Allegedly. In my own opinion. Why share TikToks to your page if I can't watch the TikToks, dude? So, however, Jerry Holman told a different story to Trooper Roland Purdy concerning the conclusions of that professor. Trooper Purdy began assisting with the investigation in March 2017. However, the first time that Purdy ever heard the word Odin or Odinite was at least May or June of 2017. It's also important to note that the first time that Trooper Purdy heard the word Odin or Odinite wasn't even through the Unified Command or any other law enforcement officer, but rather through Becky Patty, who is Libby's grandma. Becky Patty, while talking to Trooper Purdy, informed Purdy that Abby Williams had dated Holder's son, Logan, and that Logan's dad was an Odinist named Brad Holder. This information interested Purdy who then talked to Holman, and Holman told Purdy that they had already run the sticks information. This information interested Purdy, who then talked to Holman, and Holman told Purdy that they had already run the stick formations and Odin angle through a Purdue professor. Holman told Purdy that the result from the Purdue professor were, quote, kind of inconclusive, unquote. But seriously, though, how would that work? Hmm. If he's checking in at a gym at the literal time of the murders. Like on his Facebook, then he can check in anywhere. What do you mean? That's that literally could be him trying to use an alibi. But wouldn't the police be able to ping his phone? Not to his location, to a to a cell phone tower. Close to Delphi. Yes, but there's if there's one cell phone tower, no matter if he's at the gym or yeah, but in a he's forest. Not in, no, he's in Logansport. That's not a solid alibi. A solid alibi is that gym pulling footage from that day and time that he checked in. And if he's not there, that's evidence. If he is there, that's an alibi. So you're telling me that Brian Kohlberger's I was out driving around 
alibi isn't really an alibi. I was out by myself in the middle of the night driving around. That's absolutely not an alibi. <laughs> That's an alibi. <laughs> <laughs> okay, starting over. <clears throat> However, Jerry Holman told a different story to Trooper... <clears throat> All right. He actually posted one of his TikToks on his page, so I'll be able to hear his voice. I need to just... Got a new thing. Down the hill. Down the hill. It's called a mocha pot. Down the hill. It takes... Yes. <gasps> Screen record that shit so I can send it to Tom Webster. Like near tears. There it goes. Guys. done. Oh yeah. Somebody is calling him a child killer. In 2021. Okay. So. It says, you fucking piece of shit, you're a child killer, come meet me. This guy, Gary Gallagher, wants to meet up. Hey, I hope you can fight. Like I said, just come on down here, we'll, t- we'll hash it out. I'm not going to make any threats on social media. I'll save it for your face. Okay, so like, why isn't he saying, no, I'm not? a child killer and what does Gary Gallagher know well this one's really gonna piss you off so you don't like my hat you you think I'm the murderer because I'm I'm wearing this hat right Mm. how about this hat this hat trigger you my haircut do you have Karen so people did suspect him in 2021 what happened where people were thinking that he was guilty of something. It's a little weird, right? That yeah. this is the first time we're hearing of it. Well, there are there are people out there who did bring Brad Holder up early on, but I mean it it's pretty clear that no no one ever really looked into him. How many of those types of hats he has? Mm-hmm. And it almost feels like he's mocking something with how often he poses with the hat. Especially if he knows that people are thinking it's him due to the hat. And he keeps posting it and posting it and posting it. It almost feels like... I don't know. Go ahead. However, Jerry Holman told a different story to Trooper Ronald Purdy concerning the conclusions of the Purdue professor. Trooper Purdy began assisting with the investigation in March of 2017. However, the first time that Purdy ever even heard the word Odin or Odinite was at least May or June of 2017. It's also important to note that the first time that Trooper Purdy heard the word Odin or Odinite wasn't even through the Unified Command or any other law enforcement officer, but rather through Becky Patty who is Libby's grandmother. 
Becky Patty, while talking to Trooper Purdy, informed Purdy that Abby Williams had dated Holder's son, Logan, and that Logan's dad was an Odinist named Brad Holder. This information interested Purdy, who then talked to Holman, and Holman told Purdy that they had already run the stick formations and Odin angle through a Purdue professor. Holman told Purdy that the results from the Purdue professor were, quote, kind of inconclusive, unquote. Purdy also believed that he was provided a copy of what Purdue University had provided them. Upon reviewing the Purdue report, according to Purdy, the Odinite angle was not dead. In other words, Holman did not tell Purdy, and the report did not claim, that the Purdue conclusions were that it was not Odinism or any type of cult worshipping or any type of a group that would have conducted the crime. Holman has told one story to Purdy and yet another story while under oath in a deposition as to what the Purdue professor's conclusions were concerning the Odinism involvement in the murders. The difference between concluding that Odinists and cults did not commit the murders versus that the evidence is inconclusive as whether Odinists were involved in the murders is significant. In the first instance, such a conclusion could theoretically explain why law enforcement stopped pursuing the Odinite angle. In the second instance, law enforcement would presumably continue to pursue the Odinite cult angle based on the stick formations. Girl's body positioning and the F painted in Libby's blood on the tree, as well as other strong evidence supporting an orchestrated abduction and ritualistic murdering of the girls. As stated earlier, both Lesenby and Liggett privately believed more than one person were involved based upon how much work was needed to leave the crime scene the way that it was found. However, the Purdue report concluded that a band of Odinites cultists were not involved then arguably it could be the work of one man. It is very telling that Trooper Purdy had been working as an investigator on the case for at least two months before ever hearing the word Odin or Odinite. This fact is evidence that the Odinite angle was abandoned before Purdy became involved in the investigation in March 2017. This point cannot be emphasized enough. The Odinite angle was abandoned by March 2017, only a few weeks after the girls were murdered. The reason for this abandonment? A Purdue professor had reached a conclusion concerning Odinism and the crime scene. Of course, Holman tells one thing under oath about that conclusion, that Odinism and cults were not involved in the murders, and another thing to Purdy, the results were inconclusive, a report may or may not exist that does not rule out Odinism. The best thing to do to figure out which version of Holman's story to believe, if either one is to believed, is to go straight to the source, the Purdue professor, and or to read the report the professor prepared. The problem is, is that as of the filing of this document, the defense has been told that the Unified Command cannot identify the professor and therefore can't locate the professor and in the end may not ever be able to identify this mysterious professor. Additionally, the prosecution has not provided the defense with any Purdue report. 
Presumably, if the state of Indiana had such a report in its possession, then the identity of the mystery professor would be revealed. The only conclusion is that the Purdue report is missing, just as the author of the report is also missing. It is unknown if Detective Holman is currently searching for the professor. If so, he will probably never be found because of the incompetence surrounding this investigation and the complete inability to conduct a comprehensive review of all the facts and circumstances pointing to the involvement of multiple actors in this crime. To summarize, the crime scene is chocked full with signs of cult involvement. At least one law enforcement officer believed that the cult involved may be Odinites. Therefore, very early on in the investigation, Unified Command claims to have found an expert from Purdue. This expert from Purdue, according to sworn testimony of Jerry Holman, dismisses Odinism and cultism as being involved. The investigators move on from Odinism to the degree that when Trooper Purdy got involved in the investigation in March 2017, he never even hears the word Odinism or Odinite uttered by anyone in the Unified Command. Rather, Purdy hears Odinism for the first time in May or June from Becky Patty. Now this mystery professor can't be found. Two young girls were brutally murdered and an innocent man sits in Westfield being mentally abused by Odinite guards and Detective Holman can't even identify the Purdue professor that caused the abandonment of the likely source of the murders. It's very difficult to put into words the level of incompetence or worse, the level of intentionally on display it would be utterly laughable if the consequences of this dereliction of duty didn't involve life and death. The life of Richard Allen and the deaths of Abby Williams and Libby German. These are the facts that greatly undermine the credibility of the entire investigation and are an embarrassment to the greater law enforcement community. As stated previously, when determining whether a Franks hearing should be granted, the court will be determining whether the actions of Tony Liggett as alleged by the defense, were intentional or reckless. Surely a missing Purdue professor and missing report would qualify as either intentional or extremely reckless conduct. Luckily for Richard Allen, Detective Murphy was thorough and organized enough to document in great detail his findings on the Odin angle of the investigation. Enter the Odin Report. It seems only prudent that the court would review this report in its entirety before reading the remainder of this memorandum. So who is Brad Holder? Who is Patrick Westfall? Who is Johnny Messer? Who is Elvis Fields? And who is Rod Abrams? And why does the evidence strongly point towards these men as having been involved in the murders of Abby and Libby? The Odin Report provides much of the information, however the report is not the only source of evidence provided by the state of Indiana that links these men to the murders. The investigative fingerprints of Todd Click and the late Greg Ferency are prominently peppered throughout the Odin Report. Click also prepared a roughly 85-page report and delivered it to the Unified Command. However, the defense didn't receive this document until September 8, 2023, nearly 10 months after the defense counsel entered their appearance. The defense will now show what Liggett and the rest of the Unified Command knew but refused to act on. This information is also what Liggett concealed from Judge Diener. 
The defense will include the evidence that links these men to the crime scene and each other, including the intimate knowledge that these men had of the crime scene that only someone who had been at the crime scene would know. So as for Brad Holder's connections to the crime scene, um, Brad Holder's son, Logan Holder, was dating Abby Williams at the time of the murders. Nobody has denied this fact. Amber Holder, for example, discusses this fact on page 9 of the Odin Report. Exhibit 37 is a document memorializing the only known interview of Brad Holder concerning the Delphi murders, at least through August 30th, 2023. In that document, it is learned Brad Holder details that he was usually in Delphi every weekend visiting his friend Patrick Westfall and attending Satru religious ceremonies at Patrick Westfall's house, usually on Sundays. Patrick Westfall and Brad Holder had been friends prior to the murders of Abby and Libby. In fact, Patrick Westfall and Brad Holder were found in a photograph together as late as January 21st, 2017. Uh, find attached a copy of said photograph marked as Exhibit 38. Murphy noted on page 11 of the Odin report that Westfall appears 10 times in pictures that Holder posts on Facebook prior to February 13th, 2017. However, after February 13th, 2017, Westfall does not appear in any of Holder's posed photos. What happened to the friendship of Brad Holder and Patrick Westfall? Well, Amber Holder tells a very disturbing story. As can be viewed on page 9 of the Odin Report, Amber told law enforcement the following. She, Amber, said that Brad spoke of Patrick one time when he was intoxicated and said that he and Patrick got into a fight and they no longer speak to each other. He told her that he and Westfall were in the woods near a river conducting a ritual. One of them said or did something that the other did not agree with and they no longer talk to each other. She said the river was near Patrick's house. Note, Brad has a Facebook post with him and Patrick together on January 21st, 2017. Patrick Westfall was living in Delphi at the time. His address is kept confidential in Exhibit 39. Uh, this document is the narrative report of what is believed to be the only interview police conducted with Patrick Westfall. The address that Westfall was living at the time was 3.1 miles or a roughly seven minute drive to the cemetery, which is the closest entry point to where the girls were murdered. As we know from Exhibit 37, Brad Holder admitted that he spent every weekend hanging out with his friend Patrick Westfall in Delphi and participated in those religious ceremonies on Sundays with Patrick. The girls were abducted on Monday, February 13th, 2017 and Patrick Westfall appeared to no longer be friends after February 13, 2017. Defense is unaware as to whether law enforcement were even mildly curious enough to seek Brad Holder or Patrick Westfall out to ask them about their explosive information Amber told police about an argument over a ritual gone bad in the woods sometime in February 2017. Additionally, Richard Allen's defense team is unaware whether law enforcement sought a search warrant for Brad Holder or Patrick's homes. So Amber Holder tells a second and equally disturbing story. When interviewed a second time, Amber discussed another conversation that she had with Brad Holder. 
she had gone to Brad's house to visit him while the children were upstairs. She inquired about Patrick Westfall under the ruse that Amber's girlfriend had a date with Patrick. This is what is contained on page 10 of the Odin Report. It reads as follows. Brad became very nervous and told her that she needed to stay away from Westfall or she would end up dead. She said that Brad told her Westfall and his crew was responsible for the murders of the girls in Delphi and a fire that killed two girls. I asked her if she knew of the fires in Flora that killed four girls and she said she was not familiar with any fires that killed any children until Brad had mentioned it that day. She said Brad may have been talking about that fire but had the number of killed wrong. She said Brad told her that Westfall and his crew had friends in several states and that they have no problem killing race traitors. I asked her to clarify what a race traitor is and she said she believed that it meant white people who mix with other races. Amber said that Brad told her that Westfall belonged to a group called the Vinlanders and the 22. Brad told her that Westfall had many people backing him up and had powerful friends. She said that Brad was very nervous while telling her these things and was whispering like he was fearful someone would hear him. She said that throughout the conversation, Brad was constantly telling her to stay away from Westfall. He also said that Patrick had killed a lot of people and it didn't matter if they were innocent or not. Amber truly believes Brad is scared of Westfall. Prior to Amber leaving, she said that Brad told her to stay off of Westfall's radar and I can only protect you so much if you keep asking questions, unquote. He also told her that if Westfall found out that she was married to him, that she would be in danger. Brad also questioned her on why Westfall would be going on a date that he was under the impression that Westfall was married or engaged to someone. Okay, so, and I... Just reading that, I have a question. Wouldn't Westfall know that his buddy Brad had a wife? Like, and vice versa? I don't know. Maybe it's nothing, but maybe they weren't as close as people think. I don't know. Hmm. So imagine being an investigator trying to solve a horrible murder, having learned all of this information. What would a good investigator do? What would good leadership do? in the form of the uniform command do with this information. We would ask the court to think about all the tools that law enforcement had in its arsenal to pursue an investigation once these explosive stories were told. It doesn't appear that the unified command did anything. The question then may be, did they, including Liggett, want to do anything to investigate the Odinites? Was uniform command and Tony Liggett who is a member of the Unified Command, act intentionally or recklessly in the way it conducted the investigation, and by extension, was Liggett acting intentionally or recklessly in concealing this information from Diener in his affidavit for search warrant? What else linked Holder to the crime? On April 7, 2017, Holder posted a photo of a hand marked with the exact ruin found on Abby's body. So the next number of pages is basically going through Brad Holder's Facebook profile over the years, which is exactly what Bree's been doing as well. <laughs> um, I'll admit that it is disturbing. It really is. But um, to read through every little thing, 
I think would be a little bit redundant, but again, this document, as well as many others, are up on Patreon, so go and um, have a read if you want to listen to those, or sorry, if you want to read those. But I'm going to skip ahead to the next quote friend. In the document, it reads, Brad Holder's Facebook page links him to Elvis Fields in Rushville, Indiana. Elvis has admitted to participating in the murders and to now being part of a gang, even providing intimate details of the crime scene that only those participating in the murder would know. Elvis followed Brad Holder on Facebook and even recreated Brad Holder's Facebook pages like a fanboy. It makes sense. Oh, I should say that Elvis Fields has the intellect of an eight to ten year old. So, how do they know that? Um, obviously through school records and stuff mm. like that, right? So it makes sense near the finish of this section, detailing some of the evidence that links Brad Holder to the murders, by supplying the court with certain Facebook posts by Brad Holder that were mimicked and even recreated by a man named Elvis Fields. This will allow for a smooth transition to the next suspect on whom this memo will be focused, Elvis Fields. Who is Elvis Fields? This man that was mimicking Brad Holder's Facebook post from 126 miles away? You will soon learn that he is a man that has admitted to both of his sisters that he was involved in the murders. A man that told his sister that because of his involvement, he was now part of a gang and had a brother. A man who, after providing his DNA, asked police that if he could explain why his spit might be on one of the girls, would he still be in trouble, and then admitted to his sister that he did, in fact, spit on one of the girls. And perhaps most incriminating, a man who provided intimate details about the crime scene, the type of detail that only those that were at the crime scene could possess. Upon closer inspection, you will learn that Brad Holder and Elvis Fields did in fact have a common connection, Johnny Messer, but that Elvis lied to police claiming that he did not know Johnny Messer. Evidence provided by law enforcement shows that Elvis Fields lived in Rushville, 125 plus miles away from Delphi. Additionally, Elvis, at first glance, seemingly had no connection to Delphi or Logansport, However, once law enforcement officers Greg Ferency and Kevin Murphy learned that Elvis had confessed to his sisters, and especially after Elvis posed a bizarre question to Murphy, these curious law enforcement officers wanted to look at Elvis's Facebook page and ultimately compared it with Brad Holder's Facebook page. What they found was extremely telling. Elvis was obviously following Brad Holder on Facebook as evidenced by the multiple posts that Elvis mimicked Holder. Elvis Fields was not only following Brad Holder's Facebook page, but Elvis was also emulating Brad Holder by recreating Brad Holder's Facebook posts in the year leading up to Abby and Libby's murders. The defense is attaching a series of nine side-by-side -side photographs created by law enforcement. On the left side of each exhibit is a photo that Brad Holder posted on his Facebook page, on the right side of each exhibit is a photo that Elvis Fields posted on his Facebook page in which Elvis took the time to actually recreate the photos that Holder posted. They are marked as Exhibits 55 through 63. 
Highlighting just a few of those side-by-side -side photographs, Exhibit 55 shows that Brad Holder posted an image of brass knuckles surrounded by other weapons like guns next to Elvis Field's mimicked post, recreating a photo featuring brass knuckles surrounded by weapons which were knives. Exhibit 56 shows Brad Holder posted an image of Holder placing a single arrowhead in his hand next to Elvis Field's mimicked post recreating a photo of Elvis placing a single arrowhead in his hand. Exhibit 56 shows that Brad Holder posted an image of himself placing a single arrowhead in his hand next to Elvis Field's mimicked post recreating a post of Elvis placing a single arrowhead in his own hand. Exhibit 57 shows that Brad Holder posted an image of two arrowheads near each other next to Elvis's mimicked post recreating a photo of two arrowheads near each other. Exhibit 58 shows that Brad Holder posted a photograph of a single clear mason jar next to Elvis's mimicked post, recreating a photo of a single clear mason jar. This mimicking is certainly curious, especially when Brad Holder's son dated Abby Williams when Elvis Fields, 125 miles away, confessed to both of his sisters on two different occasions that he was involved in the murders. The confession included telling one sister that Abby Williams was a troublemaker and that is why he used sticks to form horns on Abby's head and admitting to another sister that he was in big trouble and going away for a while because he was present when the girls were murdered and that he spit on the girls. What are the odds that Brad Holder's son dating Abby Williams and 125 miles away a fanboy of Brad Holder named Elvis Fields was mimicking Brad Holder's Facebook posts and that fanboy admitted to being involved in the murders of the girls. For Liggett and Holman, apparently this coincidence was nothing important. Moreover, trooper Ronald Purdy refused to concede that Elvis's mimicked and recreated Facebook posts proved any connection between Holder and Fields. Trooper Purdy explained that the mimicked and recreated photos between Brad Holder and Elvis Fields might just be a coincidence. Liggett failed to inform Judge Diener of the evidence supporting Brad Holder's involvement in the murders. Before moving on to the evidence that supports Elvis Fields' involvement in the murders, the defense finishes the Brad Holder section by 1. Discussing Holder's purported alibi. 2. Showing the evidentiary linkage between Holder and Elvis Fields that support Holder luring Elvis to get involved in the murders in order to join him and Holder's gang. And 3. The circumstances surrounding Unified Command dropping the ball by intentionally or recklessly clearing Holder as a witness within weeks of the murders. Holder's alibi was not scrutinized and Evidence supports Holder recruiting mentally infirm Elvis Fields to assist in the abduction and murders while Holder tried to stand behind a shady alibi. Holder's alibi was not even close to fully vetted. Whenever Holder's name was brought up as a suspect, one reason that kept popping up as to why Holder was cleared as a suspect was his purported alibi. An unclassified FBI report revealed the work or lack of work that law enforcement performed to check out Holder's alibi. That document is marked as Exhibit 65. This report was prepared on April 13, 2017, and in this report, Pulaski Sheriff's Deputy Frederick Rogers 
followed up at Liberty Landfill in an attempt to verify the employment and the work schedule of Brad Holder. Susan Case from Human Resources stated that Holder's time card showed that he clocked in at 4.55 a.m. and clocked out at 2.45 p.m. Chase also said that she would be the only person that could change or manipulate the electronic time card. Chase further admitted that there was security cameras on site, and here's how Deputy Rogers memorialized that part of their conversation. Case advised Brad drives a, quote, junky red truck to work with a G on the front bumper. Case advised the security camera at the scales may have picked up his vehicle coming and going on that date. Case advised that Holder stays on property for his lunch break. The short report concludes with this. Case provided this officer a copy of the timesheet for this week showing Brad indeed had clocked in and out on February 13th and he was still at work on today's date. Here is what we don't know about Holder's alibi at work. And also, if he didn't get off work until 2.45 p.m., how did he check in at that gym at 2.41 p.m.? So obviously somebody's timestamps are wrong. Anyways, here's what we don't know about Holder's alibi at work. Number one, did someone clock in for Holder? There is nothing that Chase said about the clocking in process that that would prevent someone else from clocking in for Holder. Whether Holder was actually at work on February 13th could have been better vetted by simply talking to Holder's workmates that would have been on the job site on February 13th to determine if they remember Brad being present at work on that day. 2. Did someone clock out for Holder? The same logic applies. 3. Did Chase actually watch the video? The report is so poorly written that it can't be determined whether Holder's distinctive vehicle could be seen on the video or whether Chase was merely claiming that, hey, if you want to watch a video from the camera placed near the scales, it should show Holder's truck coming and going. Four, did anyone in law enforcement watch the video alluded to by Chase? And if so, what did they see? It is quite maddening that the report refers to the possibility that a simple review of a video could determine whether Holder's junky red truck with a G on its front bumper was seen coming and going on February 13th. However, the fact is that this report does not inform anyone of whether law enforcement ever viewed this video. It would be presumed that if the deputy did watch the video, he would have memorialized it. 5. Even if Holder's truck was viewed on the video, was Holder the person driving the truck as it arrived at the worksite? Perhaps the video would be able to show the image of the person driving the truck to see if it was Holder. And six, even if Holder's truck was viewed on the video, was Holder the person driving the truck as it left the worksite? In the event that Holder wanted to appear showing up for work, but then left early in someone else's vehicle to get to Delphi in the early afternoon, it would be important to know who was driving the truck when it left the property. It's only 24.3 miles or 32 minutes from Buffalo, Indiana to Delphi, Indiana. Even if Brad Holder actually clocked out at 2.45 p.m., 
He could have been in Delphi before 3.15 p.m. If Holder left at noon and had a buddy of his clock him out a couple of hours early to create the illusion that Holder was there all day, then Holder could have been on the trail by 1 p.m. This is why watching the video and interviewing employees who worked alongside Holder would have been a critical step to take in the investigation. Asking simple questions of his workmates like, did Brad leave for any period of time? Did Brad leave early? Was Brad even here? There is no excuse at all for failing to interview employees and for failing to watch the video. These failures leave open the real possibility that Brad Holder's alibi cannot be trusted without further vetting. Did police ever consider that Brad Holder convinced his minions to abduct and participate in sacrificing the girls until he arrived? Evidence supports this theory, including a sketch of the man observed milling around the high bridge near the spot of the famous video. That sketch resembles Elvis Fields. Even Trooper Purdy can't deny that fact. Charles Manson did not serve a prison sentence for actually being the person that stabbed Sharon Tate 16 times. Manson's minions committed the heinous acts. Was it ever considered that Holder had devised the plan to kill those girls and used others to do his bidding? According to Unified Command's Jerry Holman, it was considered, but there was no evidence. We have no evidence indicating that he was commanding people to go and kill other people. Then Holman commented on this very serious topic. I mean, ask Richard Allen if Brad Holder told him to go and kill the girls. I mean, you guys communicate with the guy that killed the girls. Holman's comment offers insight into his mind-blowing lack of curiosity and his limited investigative skill set. Holman's refusal to consider whether evidence supported by the possibility that Holder was directing minions is par for the course of what the defense has learned since Holman is still not interested in facts that support the possibility or even likelihood that Holder was directing others to participate in the crime, here are a few pieces of evidence that support the premise that Holman and Leggett and all of the Unified Command either recklessly or intentionally ignored. 1. Brad Holder was from Logansport, Indiana, close to Delphi. 2. Patrick Westfall was from Delphi, Indiana. Three, Johnny Messer was from Rushville, roughly 125 miles from Delphi. Four, Elvis Fields was from Rushville, roughly 125 miles from Delphi. Five, Rushville's Johnny Messer was a Vinlander slash Odinite and good friends with fellow Vinlander slash Odinite Brad Holder from Logansport. Six, Rushville's Johnny Messer was a Vinlander slash Odinite and good friends with fellow Vinlander slash Odinite Patrick Westfall. 7. Rushville's Johnny Messer recruited for his Vinlander gang, quote, all the time. 8. Investigators learned that in the summer of 2016, Johnny Messer was recruiting men that lived in his Rushville apartment complex to attend Vinlander meetings. 9. Also, that same summer of 2016, Elvis Fields was already mimicking and recreating Brad Holder's Facebook posts. This fact would provide evidence that Johnny Messer had already recruited Elvis Fields and introduced him to Brad Holder and that Elvis was now following the group's leader. 
And then in brackets, they put Brad Holder. Now that's very interesting that they're insinuating that Brad Holder, the leader, that's, I mean, that might be a little far-fetched, but who, who knows, I guess. I don't fucking know. 10. The recruiter, Johnny Messer, was a friend slash acquaintance of Elvis Fields, also from Rushville. 11. The recruiter, Johnny Messer, therefore knew both Brad and Elvis. 12. Johnny knew both Patrick Westfall and Elvis Fields. So they're saying that they all like kind of knew each other. And then 13, the recruiter Johnny Messer admitted in his October 23rd, 2018 videotaped interview with Rod Abrams, Ned Smith, and Elvis were all interested in joining the same club that he and Holder were involved in. But he claimed that he did not think Vinlanders would be interested in them. Hmm. Messer's comment appears as a self-serving attempt to distance himself from being the person that connected Holder with Elvis in light of the fact that Dougie, a man who was mentally infirm, had been affiliated with the club. 14. Brad Holder and Patrick Westfall were known for taking advantage of mentally infirm men who wanted to join Holder's and Westfall's gang. 15. When mentally infirm men wanted to join Brad Holder's and Patrick Westfall's gang, they would take advantage of these men, including have these mentally infirm men perform tasks. Are they saying like mentally challenged? Yeah. Interesting. 16. Elvis was a mentally infirm man. Trooper Kevin Murphy described Elvis as having the mental capacity of maybe a seven or eight year old. 17. Evidence provided by law enforcement shows that Elvis Fields, 125 plus miles away with no connection to Delphi or Logan Sport, was following Brad Holder on Facebook. 18. Evidence provided by law enforcement shows that Elvis Fields was not only following Brad Holder, but that Elvis was also emulating Brad Holder by taking the time to recreate Brad Holder's Facebook posts in the year leading up to the Abby and Libby murders. 19. Elvis's Facebook mimicking of Holder's posts may show that Elvis was enamored of Brad Holder and also wanted to be a part of Holder's gang. 20. Holder was known to prey on lower functioning members of society to take advantage of them and Elvis was a lower functioning member of society. 21. Was Holder grooming Elvis hoping that down the road Elvis would do Holder's bidding? 22. Did Elvis actually do Holder's bidding? Evidence supports that Elvis did in fact do Brad Holder's bidding. 23. An eyewitness observed a man within a few hundred yards of the Monon High Bridge where the girls were abducted. That man looked like Elvis Fields. So I'm not sure if it says so in here, but I know that they're saying that um, young bridge guy sketch is actually Elvis. That's what people oh. are... Insinuating. insinuating yeah that, that makes sense to the part that you're reading now yeah mm-hmm. 24 the name of the eyewitness is Teresa Libert 25 Teresa lived on the same side of the Monon High Bridge 
only 560 yards from the very place where the famous Down the Hill video was taken. A paved road, Country Road 625 West, ends almost in front of Teresa's home. So this is what is referred to as the private drive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Know what I mean? Yeah. 27. However, that road turns into a private gravel road that continues toward Monin High Bridge and services the home of Brad Weber. I feel like I've seen that name on. Yeah, because he's just off the, the private drive. 28. Around 8.30 a.m. on the morning of February 13th, 2013, Teresa Liebert observed a man on 625 West near her house standing near mailboxes used by property owners nearby. 29. Teresa has never observed the homeowners walk to their mailboxes because of the distance from their homes to the mailboxes. The homeowners drive their vehicles to drop off and pick up their mail. Teresa had never seen this man before. That's number 30. 31. Teresa was in the passenger side of a truck being driven by her husband, Dave Liebert. 32. The man Teresa observed was standing very close to the passenger side of the Liebert truck as they passed him. 33. Teresa, sitting higher in the truck, had a good view of the man's face as she passed him and noticed that the man appeared to be startled and concerned at being seen. 34. Teresa, in fact, turned to her husband and asked something like, What do you think he's doing? 35. After passing the man and driving approximately 50 more yards to their driveway, the Liberts exited the truck. 36. After exiting the truck, Teresa looked in the direction of where the man had been and noticed he was gone. Hmm. 37. Teresa did not see him on the road at all. 38. Teresa believes the man had to immediately and intentionally hide after they passed him on the road, which would explain his sudden disappearance. That's suspicious. That's weird. 39. The only reason anyone would be walking down that dead-end road would be if they were lost or if they were going to see the Liebert family or the Weber family. Hmm. 40. Teresa also remembers that the man she observed was wearing a canvas jacket that was nondescript in color, but doesn't remember a hat. 41. Later, Teresa was asked to provide a description of the man's face that she observed that morning. She did provide the description. 42. The sketch of the man that Teresa observed that morning closely resembles Elvis Fields. You know, and we everybody was so, like, confused as to why another sketch came out, an updated sketch came out, and the police, like, just said, like, well. And they actually ended up saying that young Bridge Guy sketch was actually a description collected before, like, that was the first description they got. So that sketch was based on an eyewitness that came forward early on. It's so messy now that I'm looking back and like now that we have the details that we needed to see in writing. Mm -hmm. Like that's not cool. 
Yeah. 43. Even state trooper Purdy had to admit that the Teresa Liebert sketch and the photo of Elvis resemble one another. Find attached the Teresa sketch marked as Exhibit 71 and a photo of Elvis. 44. After the girls were murdered, Elvis told his sister that he was now part of a gang and had a brother. (sighs) Fuck, if that's true, dude. 45. Was the gang mentioned by Elvis Vinlanders? And was the brother Brad Holder? Again, these are the types of questions the monumentally inept Unified Command should have been asking. Yep. Trooper Jerry Holman indicated in his deposition that there is no evidence that Brad Holder may have directed others to kill the girls. As stated earlier, Holman even proclaimed that Holder was not even really a suspect. The defense disagrees. Sometimes it just takes a little digging, a little curiosity, and the ability to put pieces of a puzzle together. Ouch. Well, I mean, it, one thing that I'll say is kind of interesting is that it, it outlines that within days of the girl, girl's ritualistic sacrifice, law enforcement started receiving tips, and we knew that, and then we also knew, oh, Richard Allen's thing was lost, right? Right. So it's kind of interesting to see that defense has information and evidence to support them saying that they started receiving tips from citizens who thought Brad Holder was possibly involved in the murder of the girls. For example, a report identified as blah, 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 was submitted at 7.21 p.m. on February 16th, 2017. The narrative on this report stated the following. Father of Logan Holder, ex-boyfriend of Libby, social media shows him a mom- Shows him a member of Vinlander's posts of half-dead women and fascination with gothic figures and symbols out of tree branches. Now, the only reason why I wanted to hit that before we moved on is that it's making me think. Because when we were recording the other episodes, we would be sitting there going, somebody knows this guy. Somebody. And you're telling me that they're, they still haven't called it in? They fucking did call it in. Multiple. Yeah. They did know the guy. They're like, that looks like him and he posts weird shit online in this small town. Yeah. Like, it's kind of adding up a little bit too much. Yeah. And the next, the next number of pages just kind of goes back over a lot of the evidence that was concealed or not um, investigated properly. I'm not saying that the document is redundant at all needs to be documented, but I think reading it all again um, would be a little bit redundant. Yeah, I agree. At this point. Just because they talk about it in a few paragraphs, they are pointing the finger at Liggett saying no leads required and no further leads. Like they're saying that maybe it was a error a clerical error or an unfortunate oversight. To me, that's interesting. Because he said, he didn't say no further leads. He said no leads required. Right. That's not cool. No. I'm still stuck and I'll never be unstuck on the fact that 
anybody that stood in front of the camera for law enforcement said we haven't cleared anybody yeah that's all they used to said and and i mean i made kind of a little bit of a joke out of it in the episode where nobody's cleared but they're covering everybody mm-hmm. now all of a sudden in 2023 they cleared brad holder it doesn't make sense yeah so it was it's the report of people calling in and saying you need mm-hmm. to look into brad holder and through that report, it was Liggett who said, no leads required, has been covered. And all I'm saying is I was reading through Brad Holder's um, posts, and this is all alleged, and I don't know, but when he posted about people accusing him of this, he did say in the comments that he had a police friend who told him that he wouldn't be able to pursue legal action against people saying these things. So I'm just saying I would love to know who that police friend is. That is all. Page 99, there's Patrick Westfall's connection to the crime scene. He's mentioned a lot. Um, Did you read, like, through 93, page 93, just about Joyce um, being interviewed by law enforcement officers Kevin Murphy and Greg Ferency? Uh, on two previous occasions, Joyce had denied that Elvis had made incriminating statements to her. However, in this third interview, Joyce reluctantly recounted to Ferency and Murphy statements that Elvis had made to her in the fall of 2017. According to Joyce, sometime in the fall of 2017, Elvis moved in with her following the death of her boyfriend. Joyce recounted the following statements Elvis made to her in the kitchen in October of 2017 at a time when they were living together under the same roof. I am in a lot of trouble. I am going away for a long time. I was on that trail and that bridge with those girls when they were murdered. There were two other people there with me when it happened. I spit on one of the girls after they were killed. Hmm. That's weird for sure that's a weird thing to have like on file and not dig into more i agree what's the phone problem when told law enforcement would check cell phone records to see if rod was actually at the hospital in muncie that is that rod explained that hospitals cut cell reception on phones because they interfere with hospital equipment so their phones probably would not show that they were at the hospital. In the Joyce interview provided in Discovery, handwritten notes presumably of law enforcement state the following. Fields, Ned Smith, Rod Abrams, not in Muncie on February 13th at hospital. Interesting. So they're saying that there's evidence that Rod, Ad- that Rod Abrams was lying as well. Mm-hmm. On February 13th, 2017, phone records apparently show that Elvis's phone stayed in the same place in Rushville from approximately 10.30 a.m. until approximately 7.30 p.m. Phone records also show that Elvis, for some reason, did not use his phone whatsoever for roughly nine hours. That's weird. That's weird. Elvis told law enforcement that he usually kept his phone on him. As stated in the previous paragraph, Rod stated that Elvis had taken his phone 
to Muncie to visit the mystery friend at the hospital. However, phone records show that Elvis's phone was in Rushville during that time frame. The phone problem is twofold. One, Elvis's phone remaining at his home for roughly nine straight hours conflicts with Rod Abrams' professed alibi for Elvis, Ned Smith, and Rod. Two, in today's day and age, it would seem highly unlikely that Elvis simply did not pick up his phone for roughly nine hours, especially when Elvis claimed that he usually kept his phone with him. The takeaway for any curious investigator would also be at a minimum twofold. One, Rod lied about being in Muncie, but Elvis forgot to stick with that lie. Two, Elvis went up to Delphi but was told to leave his phone behind so that the phone data would not show that he was in Delphi. It is unknown if Rod or Ned Smith's phone records were ever recovered. Elvis described forming horns out of sticks and placing them on Abby's head and crime scene photos confirm Elvis's statement. Mm-hmm. How else would he know that? Right. Um, game over. Like. You'd think. Like, and I mean, page 103 has some pretty disturbing information about Elvis as well. Okay, let me make sure that there's nothing weird here. Okay, so you told me a little bit that Mary's Elvis's sister, other sister, she did the the polygraph examination, um, and in the pre-examination interview, polygraph examiner Stephanie Thompson recorded that Mary stated the following. Elvis told her Abigail is a little troublemaker and that he placed leaves on her and used sticks to give her horns. That's what I mean. Like, a lot of it is just repeating things that we've actually repeated many times. True. The new stuff that there... It's stupid because there's stuff that we haven't seen before kind of mixed in. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? Yeah. It's hard to Almost like they wanted to... Uh, strategically reiterate those little pieces to drill it in. Yeah. Which, Which if I need a lawyer... Which some of stuff on 103, I mean, I would have been reiterating the entire time. Rod Abrams told police a lie about his whereabouts on February 13th, 2017. This was discussed and referenced in Elvis's section, as was the fact that Elvis's alibi conflicted with Rod Abrams' alibi. Here are a few other evidentiary nuggets picked up from the defense's review of Rod's February 27th, 2018 interview that the prosecution just provided to the defense on September 8th, 2023. Some of these evidentiary nuggets from Rod Abrams videotaped interview incriminate Elvis Fields. One, Elvis had been working for Ned Smith since 2005, but then stopped working for Ned in 2017, the same year as the murders. Two, according to Rod, Elvis was communicating with a 12-year-old girl on the internet and discussing inappropriate things. Three, Elvis used Facebook to communicate to young girls aged 13, 14, and 15. Four, when law enforcement asked Rod, has he, Elvis, ever talked about doing anything to a couple of girls, there is a long pause. Then Rod finally said, no. The law enforcement officer then said, are you sure? Rod 
Rod responded, he's never, I mean, he has, I mean, the law enforcement officer then says, you kind of hesitated when I asked you that. You think? Five, when Rod is asked if Ned Smith and Elvis will also say that they all were in Muncie on February 13th, 2017, Rod doesn't answer the question. But after another long pause, tells a long rambling story about how Ned doesn't always remember things. Six, finally, law enforcement asks Rod if they can look at Rod's phone to see any texts between Rod and Elvis. And Rod refuses, claiming that Elvis no longer has his phone number after Rod changed phones. Like, okay, then fucking prove it. What do you mean? Yeah, yeah. Seven, according to Johnny Messer, Rod Abrams, along with Elvis and Ned Smith, were all interested in joining Messers and Holders Vinlander Club. Hmm. Like, I can't with these, and I mean. Next is going to be part three. The, the information about Elvis talking to young girls. It, I mean, that's. That opens up a little bit of a can of worms, but I I mean, I would just like to point out that since the Kagan Klein shit happened, um, there have been so many pedophiles and online predators brought to justice in Indiana. They're everywhere, and I'm sure they're everywhere, everywhere. It doesn't matter that it's Indiana, but this state seems to be on some kind of a record-breaking streak of finding and arresting these pigs but anyways I'm not saying that I think Elvis has been arrested or charged which if they have evidence of this stuff shouldn't he be but anyways depending on what they're talking about I guess but sorry go on no that I feel like that's pretty much it for that part um and like the the rest of the 136 page document is I believe about um, Liggett Mm -hmm. and his sketchiness and then also just Odinism in West Westville Correctional yeah so the conclusion of part two was dense with information. However, the court should be able to see that Tony Liggett knew about the obvious connection between Odinism and the murders, and specifically the connection to Brad Holder, Patrick Westfall, Johnny Messer, Elvis Fields, and Rod Abrams, based upon the evidence provided to the court. The fact that a mystery Purdue professor purportedly led the Unified Command off the scent of the Odinites is preposterous. Additionally, according to Todd Click's affidavit, the FBI cold case unit determined that Odinites were involved in the murders, but the Unified Command did nothing to investigate it. Unified Command seemingly rebuffed the Rushville investigators, who were Ferency, Murphy, and Click, who believed, based upon a large collection of evidence, that Holder, Westfall, Fields, Messer, and Abrams were all involved. Liggett's concealment of this Odinite information from Judge Diener was intentional or reckless or both. Well, I think that's a pretty good place to end off for part four. I agree. (laughs) This is a lot of information. 
Yeah, Shar's like dead. It feels like there's a lot of like repeat information, just things that they're trying to drill into the court's memory. So um, I think... We'll skip through some stuff if you really want to make sure that you don't miss anything. Pick up approximately in the part two. Like everything else we've pretty much read, like yeah. verbatim. Yeah. Um, but in part five, we're going to wrap it up and just kind of go through the main information in the final parts and not, well, at least try not to repeat the same old stuff over and over again unless it has to do with something that we think is interesting or new right right yeah so see you guys in part five if you enjoyed this episode please like it and share it with your friends if you don't mind giving us a five-star rating it'll help our show grow you can email us at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com or on facebook messenger and uh, join our patreon if you want Bonus content, including over 140 Delphi documents, court filings, and the rest of it. I'm Bree. And I'm Char. And we'll see you in part five. The final part.